Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, we are at the home stretch, right? So here's the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We have 25 verses left to go. We're going to get through three of them today, and we will bring this ship in for a landing um, uh, on May uh, 2nd and 3rd. And let me just sort of um, promote what's happening next. And you're like, what are we, you know, what book are we going through next? Well, I'm super excited uh, because we are, I don't know if you know this, but there is a book in your Bible that is all about love and sex and dating and marriage and romance and Jesus called the Song of Solomon. And so we're going to go through that. We've never done this before. We're actually going to go back. We, we did it about eight years ago, and we're going to do it again. And we're doing it again, not, not because we want to be sensational, but because this is such a relevant topic. There is so much confusion. There's so little that we talk about this that we need to sort of resurface it in each generation and talk about uh, what, what a right relationship with these things looks like. And so I want you to be thinking about who you can invite even now uh, to come and be a part of this. This is, this is in a section of Scripture called Wisdom Literature. And if you remember back to our Ecclesiastes series, that was also wisdom literature. And a lot of people looked at Ecclesiastes and were like, this is the weirdest book I've ever seen. And yet it ended up being one of the most relevant sermon series we ever had. There was all kinds of people that just loved it. And, uh, and I promise you that it'll be the same uh, with Song of Solomon. We're going we're gonna to talk very frankly. We may say some things in church you've never heard in church, but um, uh, we're, we're, uh, we need to talk like this. We need to, to, to sort of uh, take back what's been hijacked by the culture because sex is God's idea, love is God's idea, romance is God's idea, and hear what he has to say about it. Now, some of your parents are like, wait a second, because I know that my kids go through the same thing we go through in here. What's happening? We're not going to do that. So uh, we're going to have a whole other separate curriculum we're taking our kids through that we're really, really excited about. It's going to show them the gospel in every part of Scripture, uh, beginning with Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it's awesome. And I am super excited about that. So um, anyways, well, I just want to give you that, just sort of put the bug in your ear so you're kind of ready for that. It'll start May 9th and 10th will be the, the first weekend of the Song of Solomon series. And maybe you think, well, I'm not married or maybe I'm, I'm a single person. Well, look it. If you have any any desire to be a blessing to people who are married or a blessing to maybe younger people or you have children or grandchildren or um, that you want to sort of counsel in this area or you hope to be married or you're in a romantic relationship, look, this is for everyone. And so I don't want you to skip out on this series. Uh, this will take us through the summer. And um, again, just really excited to see uh, how God uses this in our lives as we, as we see Jesus in all of Scripture, truthfully. And that's, uh, that's probably one of the most exciting things, okay? All right, Hebrews chapter 13. Um, one of the things that helps us make sense of, of uh, disparate things in life, of just make sense of life in general, is um, I think one of the uh, innate hardwirings of the human brain, and that is that we look for patterns. Right? We, we, we sort of live our lives according to patterns even. We, we look for patterns. We find them in mathematics and biology and nature and the universe and all kinds of things because it helps us take this mess of information and begin to make sense of it. And what is true in life is true in Scripture. Do you understand? There are patterns that you can discern in Scripture. And when you know that they're there, uh, it's very helpful for you to read and to understand what Scripture is saying. Now, I don't mean there's some you know, secret hidden code. I mean there's some very obvious patterns. So one of those patterns is that God's grace always precedes, always precedes God's demands. 
Okay, so you're going to see this everywhere in Scripture. In fact, you're going to see it starting from Genesis chapter 1. God breathes life. He gives life to Adam and Eve. He sets them in the garden. He says, here, this is all for you. I'm blessing you. I'm giving you everything. Now, here's what I want you to do. See, with Israel, Israel is in captivity. God says, I'm going to rescue you. No effort of your own. My, uh, my mighty hand, my outstretched arm is going to deliver you from the land of Egypt. And then I'm going to give you the law. Okay? So that what you learn is that, is that it's not our obedience that activates God's grace in response. It's God's grace that activates our, that's a, that, that, that's a pattern in scripture. It activates our obedience. You can look for it and you can see it and that's helpful for you to understand. But there's another pattern and it's this. It's that, that we, you'll always see that God wants us to have a right understanding with him, a right relationship with him that, that precedes a right relationship with each other. So, so God's going to say, I'm going I'm to tell you all about me, and then I'm going to see that translate from the vertical to the horizontal. I mean, you'll see this even all the way back in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are all about a right relationship with God. The last six are then, okay, take that, and now here's a right relationship with each other. You see this everywhere in Scripture. There's this right relationship with God, and then a right relationship with other. In fact, we could say it this way. We can't have a right relationship with each other the way that Jesus intended, the way that God intended, until we first have a right relationship with God. Okay, so, so this is all over Scripture. And what I want you to see is when we get to Hebrews chapter 13, it's no different. Okay, what, what have we done? What has, what has Hebrews 1 through 12 been all about? Yeah, it's all about Jesus and Jesus is greater. But I want you to understand who Jesus is. I want you to get sort of this. I want you to scale this mountain of theology, if you will. I want you to understand who he is for you, uh, who God is for you in Christ. And then now we're going to get to Hebrews chapters 12 and 13 that, that push us out towards one another. What's a right relationship with Israel? Hebrews chapter 13 isn't just like, oh, and by the way, I've got a few more things I need to say to you. and I'm just going to tack them on the end. I want you to see how it logically flows out from this. See, the writer of Scripture is his main, the writer of Hebrews, his main purpose is saying, I don't want you to give up. I want you to run the race of faith and, and run it diligently and run it all the way to the end and not fail. So how did he do that? How did he help us as we walk through this? He kept showing us Jesus. He kept showing us God. He kept showing us who, who Christ is for us. Now he's going to say, I want you to see, I want you to take this. We're going we're to come off that vertical plane. We're going to go to the horizontal plane. I'm going to show you how you, how each other can help one another in the race of faith. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going today. And if I could put one word over verses one through three, it would simply be this. We need encouragement. I need to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged in order for us to keep racing the race of faith, okay? So he looks and he says, okay, so what can we do to help each other finish the race of faith well? Persevere until the end. That's what he's going to show us today, Okay. So three things. The first thing he says is don't stop loving each other. That's the first thing I want you to see. Don't stop loving each other. So look at verse 1 of chapter 13. 
he says, let brotherly love continue. Now notice this. He's talking to Christians. And he says, I don't want this brotherly love to stop. By the way, the word brotherly love is a word that you know in Greek. You actually know the Greek word. And it's the, the word, it's, it's this combination of two words, philo, it's this love, and delphos, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Um, and this is where we get the, this is where they get the word is, is he's saying, let Philadelphia, let this Philodelphos continue and don't do anything. Don't throw up roadblocks in the way. I want this to be something that is constantly happening, keeps on going through the life of the church. Jesus Christ loves you. God has loved you in Christ. His love will never fail you and it will never give up on you and it will always continue. And so yours for one another ought to continue. Now, Notice that it's a command. Let it continue. Let, let this happen. Now what that means, or think about it this way, how in the world, have you ever thought about this? This happens over and over in Scripture. Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice, Lord, again, I'll tell you, rejoice. That's a, that's a command. The writer of Hebrews says, love. John's going to say, love one another. I mean, these are commands. How do I how do I do something? How, how can he possibly command me to do what I don't feel? I don't love you. How am I supposed to love you? Well, that tells you something about love. And it tells you that love is not primarily a feeling. Love is this active choice, this determined commitment one person to another. This is a truth that I wish more and more married couples would get. To understand, I mean, look, um, I have given Michelle all kinds of reasons not to feel loving toward me, right? But she still loves me. Why? Because she's got a commitment to love me. Does that mean she never, she's like, She's kind of going through the motions but really hates me inside. No, because here's the crazy thing. The longer you love someone, like the Bible commands you to love them, the longer you love someone, you'll eventually like them. <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. Love someone long enough and you will eventually like them. I mean, that, that's going to happen for all of us. And, and, and this, is, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, I want you guys to love each other so much that eventually you start liking each other, right? Like, like, um, so, so think of it this way. When it comes to us and our relationship, very often our feelings follow our behavior, not the other way around. Okay, it doesn't, doesn't flip over. We, we, need to, we need to sort of say, my, I'm going to behave in a certain way towards you, and eventually my feelings will follow. Now, some people could say, well, Chris, isn't that hypocritical? Or let's use the modern term that we love throwing around. That doesn't seem authentic. Right? It seems inauthentic for you to say, I feel one way on the inside, but on the outside I'm acting differently. Is that inauthentic? No, that's Christian. But the Bible tells me I'm supposed to be a man with self-control. If I claim to know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is in me, then I have self-control. I should have. That should be a fruit of the Spirit within me, which means by definition, I am saying no or yes to th things that, that uh, the, the Bible would say you should say no to that. 
And so I say no, even though inside, everything in me says yes to that. I want it. I want it. No, this is no. And vice versa, right? Jesus says, you want to you follow me? You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Be inauthentic. Be a person who does not act in accordance with everything that you feel. Right? Your heart will lead you in all kinds of crazy ways. It is not hypocritical. It is not inauthentic. It is deeply Christian for you at times to say, you know what? I am going to act in such a way toward other people that I may not feel right now. I want to love them long enough that eventually I'll like them. Um. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we, he says, let love continue. All right, writer of Hebrews, we want to do that. How? I think he's going to give us part of the answer in verses 2 and 3. But let me, let me give you some other things to think about. How is it that, that we can let love continue? Well, here's something really practical for you. How about you just give each other the benefit of the doubt? See, the, one of the ways that we can let love continue, one of the ways you can let love continue in your marriage, let love continue in your growth group, let love continue at Foothill Church, let love continue between your children, children and parents, is give each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, here's what I mean. Think about it this way. Uh, We all can think of situations um, with people that we relate to where our expectations of them and their behavior are two different things, right? So you go to a growth group. The expectation is you'll show up at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night or whatever it is. The behavior is you didn't show up. Okay, there's a, there's a, there's a, now I've got a gap, right? I've got a gap between my expectations and your behavior. What, 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 what do I, now, now the question is, what do I fill that gap with? Do I fill it with suspicion? Do I fill it with trust? Do I give you, do I assume the best of you or do I assume the worst of you? This is something that um, some of you know the name Patrick Lencioni and he's written this book called The Advantage. And The Advantage, he talks about what he calls the fundamental attribution error. And let me show you what he, how he defines fundamental attribution error. He says, it's the tendency to attribute the negative or frustrating behaviors of others to their intentions and personalities, but to attribute my own negative behaviors, behaviors to environmental factors. In other words, I don't give you the benefit of the doubt that I give myself. See, when you don't show up at growth group, well, you obviously are a slacker. You have a problem. When I don't show up, well, it's because of traffic. Right? Husband comes home. Wife's been busy, you know. She's, she's trying to get dinner on the table for everybody. And the husband comes home. And she's expecting when he comes home, I'm so harried right now, he's going to help me. And he goes off and lays on the couch. What's she going to fill the gap with? Because her temptation is to go, um, uh, he's lazy. He's a good for nothing, you know what. I can't believe he's doing this to me, right? Whereas if the tables were turned, maybe she would say, I don't feel good, and that's why I went and laid down. See, are we going to build a culture in the church, in your home, in your growth group, 
in your business of trust or suspicion. There's just absolutely no advantage for us to have a culture that's filled with suspicion, that's filled with assuming the worst. None. There's no advantage to that. Right? But you say, well, Chris, okay, but, but, but I've been burned. I've been burned hundreds of times. Okay, look, here's what I'm saying. Yep, there's, a, there's another side to this, that if, if we're going to fill that gap with trust, then the people must be trustworthy. Here's, but here's what we say. I will trust you. I will give you the benefit of the doubt until you prove me otherwise. Until you show me that that's completely unfounded. And do you see this? This is one of the ways that we let love continue. As we look around and say, man, that, that person didn't behave, but you know, no, no. I know him, I know her. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. But that assumes another part that, that, that we can do to let love continue. And that's simply getting to know each other. So I can't, I can't trust you if I don't know you. I can't, get to, I can't love you if I don't know you, right? But the more I know you, generally speaking, the more I love you. And the more I love you, the more I like you, right? And you'll see this. I mean, you'll see this pattern in your own life. I see it in my own life. I remember, I remember eight and a half years ago, okay, December of 2006, Foothill Church voted for me to become their pastor. And uh, most of you will never have to go through this, but that is a very bizarre process, I think, for both sides of the equation, right? I mean, I have spent a grand total of a few hours with people, and they with me, and I get up and I preach on a Sunday, and they vote and they say yes by the grace of God. Now, here's what happens. You get done with that, and you're like, Wake up the next morning, and I'm sure they're thinking, what have we done, oh Jesus? And I'm thinking, what have I done? I don't even know these people. They don't even know me. I, I love them. So guess what? You go, I'm going to love you. And they go, we're going to love you. And anybody who has stuck through these eight and a half years, David and Sandra Castle and Alan Betty Marsala and others that are sitting around here, deserve a jewel in their crown, right? Um, but let me tell you what, I'll, I'll speak from my side. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you when it feels hard. I feel like I don't want to. I'm going to love you. I'm not saying I'm a martyr. I'm this great guy. I'm just saying, listen, I'll tell you what happened in my own heart. The longer I loved you, the more I liked you. Now I'm like, I love this place. I like this place. I like everything about it, right? Now I'm saying this can happen on interpersonal scale, right? This is what God wants. The writer of Hebrews is saying, man, I, I, want, I want this kind of church. I want you to be, I want you to be this kind of church that learns, that gets to know each other. See, we need each other. If I'm gonna be encouraged, if I'm gonna keep running the race of faith, then love has to continue. That's how. Now, why do we want love to continue? Why should love continue? What's so important about love continuing among us? Well, I can think of several things. Let me, let me just give you three. Number one, uh, uh, the love continuing reveals to the world that we belong to Christ. To the world. Okay, it says to people outside of us, hey, those are real Christians. Like, look what, look what um, Jesus says in John chapter 13. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. So, so not, not you'll know, 
they will know if you have love for one another. This is God's way of saying to the world, hey world, I know it's confusing. Lots of people call themselves Christians. Lots of people say they're disciples of Christ. Here's the test for you world. Here's the litmus test. Do they love one another? When you observe them, do you watch them? Are they actively choosing and committed to one another? Are they like, you know, I'm one of those who I love Jesus, I just hate the church. Then don't listen to them. Don't listen to them because that's not, that's not real Christianity. See, it reveals to the world that we belong to Christ. But the second thing it does is it confirms our identity in Christ. Look, what, look how John says it in, in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know. Now we're, now we're talking about how I know. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he's saying, Chris, I want you to be sure of your salvation. When you look inside, Chris, do you see that you have love? Not this smarmy feeling that sort of fluctuates and goes in and out. No, do you have a commitment to the people of God? Do you? Because if that's there, that's an evidence for you that it's real. If it's not there, Chris, then you have reason to wonder. Do you have that? And you look and say, man, I've got, I've got that commitment. I've got that active commitment operating in my heart. But then the last reason we could say that's a good thing is that it delights the heart of God. See, us walking together simply delights God. Psalm 133 says this, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers, sisters dwell together in unity. I mean, God just looks at it and says, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to see you just walking and loving and commitment to one another. See, we're not going to make it if love doesn't continue. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I want you to get to the finish line. And that's only going to happen in an environment where you love others, others are loving you. There's this mutual encouragement happening. We need each other is the idea, Okay. But now look at the second thing he says, and it's this, that, that what else should we do to, uh, to, to finish the race of faith together? He says, don't stop loving outsiders. Don't stop loving outsiders. Look at verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, let me just clear up something. He's not saying the reason you should, you should be hospitable is because uh, the motive ought to be that there might be angels with you. No, he's just saying, he's saying sometimes in, in the past, he looks back at scripture, he thinks of maybe the story of Samson with his parents or thinks of Abraham and Sarah. There were times when they were simply being hospitable to strangers and, and realized afterwards that was the angel of the Lord. Like an angel, like God so smiled on hospitality that sometimes he enters into the midst of it. But notice what he says. He says, um, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Okay, so we've already learned one Greek word. Let me do another, because listen to this. Philodelphos said brotherly love. Um, there's an English word also that we know, and it's, it's called xenophobia. Okay, xeno meaning foreigner or stranger, phobia meaning fear of or dislike of or those kind of things. So we, we say somebody is xenophobic if they don't like outsiders. We say they're xenophobic if they sort of have a fear of strangers and foreigners. Okay, he, he uses a word here for, for, for hospitality. The word hospitality in Greek literally is philoxenia. 
Philo, love strangers. A love for strangers. You know what I want you to have? I want you to have a love. Who are strangers? Who are outsiders? They can be anybody that you're not personally acquainted with, that you don't have a personal friendship with, Christian or non-Christian. See, what, what comes to mind when you think of the word hospitality? Dinner party, right? Come to my house and I'll serve you dinner. That might be a good start. Um, but that is not what's going on here. Hospitality in the New Testament is a a pretty radical concept. Let me talk about outsiders for a second. Paul says this about outsiders in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That word time is where we get our word season. So he's saying there are seasons, and what you need to do is be very wise towards people who aren't a part of you. People who are outside. People who are strangers. Be wise. Okay, so there's wisdom. We, we do have wisdom when it comes to, to, to strangers, okay? The guy shows up with a ski mask and a bloody axe. Wisdom would say, don't let him in the house, right? That you don't have to be hospitable to that man, okay? So, so, so there's wisdom, but he's saying, look, make the best use of the season. Now, now, this is very relevant to us right now. Here we are. It's Easter season. It's practically un-American not to go to church. And one of the ways we could, we could make the best use of the season and walk in wisdom is simply by taking one of those cards that Stephen talked about and saying, here, will you come to church with me? I mean, something like 75% are just saying, I would go to church if somebody would just ask me. Ask them. And they could come here and they could hear the gospel and who knows what God would do. And maybe he would change their entire lives. Maybe he would change their entire family tree. We have no idea. And we look and say, look what the gospel's done for me. Look what Jesus has done for me. I'm not the same person. My family's not the same people. But hospitality is far more radical than inviting somebody to church. Um, see, in the first century, Hospitality, in fact, in many cultures today, hospitality is a virtue. Because here's what it looked like. You would travel from city to city, let's say. You're selling goods or whatever, and that meant you had to find a place to stay. Well, there were inns back in those days, right? There was the Motel 6 on the corner that you could go to. But the Motel 6 back in the ancient Near Eastern world tended to be very expensive, uh, very seedy, uh, sometimes very dangerous. They were sort of doubled as, uh, as brothels. I mean, one ancient writer talks about going into his, the inn and the bed was infested with fleas. And this was apparently very typical. And so it was a, it was a virtue to say, hey, you can come into my home and you can stay here. I see you're a stranger. I see I don't know you. You've come into this tribe, you've come into this family, you've come into this village, and now I look around and I say, hey, why don't you come stay with me? And they're inviting you into their home and therefore inviting you into their life. I honestly believe that hospitality, properly understood, might be one of the key things that we as Christians could do to regain cultural credibility. Like just, just go, this is gonna show us being very different. And I don't know, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Dropbox. Anybody heard of this movie? 
There's, there's this South Korean pastor, Pastor Lee, who would go out and, and realize that, that people were literally abandoning their children on the street and the children would die, they would be exposed, they'd freeze to death, whatever. And Pastor Lee says, this can't happen. I've been saved. I've been adopted. I'm a child of God. And I cannot let this happen. So you know what he did? He installed a box on his home where people could walk up, open it, put their baby in it, an alarm would ring, he'd run downstairs, he'd open it, he'd pull that baby out, and that baby would become his. Some babies were deformed, some babies had mental disabilities, and he says, it doesn't matter, there is no worthless child, I'll take him. That's hospitality. That's the kind of hospitality, he says, I'll take that stranger, and he or she'll be mine, and I'll care for them. We got families in this church who are practicing hospitality radically by saying, I will, I will enter into the foster and adopt system and I'll adopt, I'll foster children. I'll, I'll bring, I'll, you, you can put one, two, three strangers into my home and I will love them like they're my own. What a risk. But what a message to the world that we're different, that we've been adopted. We were strangers and aliens, the Bible says, says, but but Christ took us in and says, you're mine. We're hospitable when we say, you know what? You can use my home for a growth group, right? I'll let a room full of strangers, outsiders come in and occupy my home for an evening because I want to encourage them in their faith. I want them to finish strong. You're hospitable when you're a growth group that says, you know what, it's been us four and no more for the last few years, and we've not let in any outsiders. I think it's time. I think it's time we open our doors and say, you know what, we ought to let some other person come in that needs the maturity that God's given to us to pour into them and see them grow and be encouraged in their faith so they finish well. It's hospitality when we as a church decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to structure church life so that outsiders feel welcome. We're going to spend money, good money on coffee and serve it to them. We're going to have people stand outside and, and, and greet them as they come in to let them know we're really glad you're here. We're going we're gonna to have people sit over with children that they don't even know and not babysit them, but teach them the gospel. I don't even know these kids. They're strangers to me. They're outsiders, but you're being hospitable. Do you see this? This, this is a word that we have made so puny in our vocabulary, and it's so radical that if we really were this, we could change our world. Don't, don't stop loving, don't stop loving others. See, because the church, the Christian that ceases to be hospitable is a church and is a Christian that is on the brink of spiritual irrelevance. And their doors are going to close because God's not sending them anybody else. Let's not be that. Okay, 
Now he goes on and he says, let me, let me give you one other thing that'll help encourage other people in their race of faith. And the last thing he says is don't forget the mistreated. So look at verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You understand this is happening in our world. This is not theoretical. Right, there, is, there, is, there is gaining a momentum of greater and greater mistreatment of Christians in America, but certainly all over the world. We have brothers and sisters who are in prison. We saw 21 of them beheaded on the shores of Libya for their faith. Because don't you forget them. You make it something that you willfully call to mind and you remember them. What does he mean by that? What are we supposed to do? I think what he's saying is I want you to identify. I want you to think, what, what, what would I need if I were in prison for my faith? What would I need if I were being mistreated for my faith? What would I need if there was a lawsuit against me because I stood up for my faith? What would I need? Just remember them. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought about, I thought about Nehemiah. If you don't know the story of Nehemiah, it's a book in your Old Testament the first part of your Bible, you can find it in the table of contents. It's an amazing story. But in the beginning, if you recall, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, we find out, is a cupbearer to the king. He has a great life. This is probably, according to many theologians, this is in historians, that is probably one of the highest positions in all of the kingdom. Most trusted position, maybe the number two guy. He is living a great life. He has no needs. He has no wants. Financially, he's set. And then one day, some friends come from Jerusalem. Nehemiah is Jewish, and they come from Jerusalem. And he says to them, he asks them two questions. How are God's people, and how is God's place? And they say to him, Nehemiah, it's awful. The people of God are harassed. Nehemiah, the, the walls are coming down. They've just been put in ruins. There's nothing to protect them. They are exposed to the entire world. And the next verse says that when Nehemiah heard those words, he says, I sat down and I, and I wept and I mourned and I fasted for days. And then the next verse says, and then I prayed this. And I've always wondered what happened between the moment he sat down and the interval of days, what was he praying before we get to the verse that he actually prayed? And you have to wonder if he's going, God, what can I do? What do I do? What do you want me to do? This is breaking my heart, what I see happening among your people. It's breaking my heart when I look overseas and I see what's going on with other Christians. It's breaking my heart when I look and say, your agenda's going down the tube. What do you want me to do? God, you want me to go there? God, you want me to send them money? God, what do you... Uh, uh, just tell me. And apparently God at one point says, Nehemiah, I want you to be part of, the, part of the solution. Go. That's what happens. What does it look like for us to remember those who are mistreated? Like, what can you do? Well, let me, let me give you a few things. Number one, you can just be there. Right? The ministry of your presence not the ministry of your eloquence, 
Not all the words that you can fill their ears and all the advice you can give them, just saying, you are going through it. And I see it. And I'm just going to come and be with you. You're being mistreated in this world. And I am just, I'm not going to. Because see, isn't this the temptation? That when, when authorities, when things begin to crumble for Christians, we kind of want to distance ourselves from them because I'm now guilty by association and I don't want what's happening to them to happen to me. And writers of Hebrews are saying, don't do that. Because when it all falls down, man, think if you were that person. Identify with them like Nehemiah. Have that kind of heart that says, what do you want me to do? Just be there. Go stand next to them. Say, you know what? The world may be against you, but I'm here and I'm not leaving. And I want you to know that, that I'm with you. It's a great picture of marriage, by the way. That the world may look at your spouse and say horrible things, turn against them. But the other spouse must never. I'm here. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to love you. Just be there. Sometimes that's all it takes, just your presence. Or how about this? How about, how about giving them financial support? Sometimes this is the most tangible, encouraging thing you can do. Do you understand this is what you're doing when, when we send missionaries, when we send people, because maybe you can't go yourself, but we send them over and give them money, give them resources, give them the material things they need to actually carry on the mission in foreign places that we can't go? This is Paul. Paul in Philippians uh, chapter, chapter 4 says, says it was kind. He's talking to the Philippians and he says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know how in the beginning of the gospel, in other words, when I started down the path of this ministry and getting, out, getting the word out about this most impactful message in all the world that Jesus Christ has died and rose again, in the beginning of that when I did that, no church entered into partnership with me except you only. You were the only ones. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, twice. We find out in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, that, that, that this was a very poor church, Philippi. Extreme poverty, Paul calls it. And they took up an offering. He says, man, I was so encouraged. In fact, he says, he says, your offering was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Thank you. I'm so grateful for the way you encouraged me. But then the last thing we can do is we can, we can pray. Now look, at, I, I don't put this last because I think, well, try to do everything else and then, you know, and if all else fails, try and pray. No, we pray. We pray at the first point. We pray at the second point. We pray all along the way. And we're saying because we're calling upon the God of the universe who can move heaven and earth for people. Do you pray for the mistreated? Do you pray for the imprisoned? Do you pray for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are suffering horribly right now? 
Well, he's saying, you know, will, will, you just, will you just stop? And Paul says in Colossians, he says at the very end of Colossians, remember my chains. In other words, prayer is the only thing they can do. You can't come visit me, I'm in prison. You can't send money, that's not gonna do any good. But you can pray for me because Paul knows that, you know what? In history, the prayers of the saints or the people of God has done amazing things. It was a prayer meeting that caused the, 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 the gates of the prison that Peter was in to fling open and Peter went and joined him at the prayer meeting. And sometimes God will do that. And so we pray, Lord, you know, you know there are brothers and sisters. You know, maybe you know people by name. They are being mistreated. You know they're in prison. And we pray on the one hand, God, set them free. But on the other hand, we say, but if not, then God, I pray. Like those 21 men that were marched down by ISIS, that they would finish well with the name of Jesus on their lips. God, God, I pray, let them not punt. Let them not give in at this moment. Let this be something where they sense your grace in ways they've never known before so that for the rest of the world, as some of our friends even talk about it who are from the Middle East, they say, on the one hand, this is so tragic that these men died. On the other hand, it is the blood of the martyrs that's opening doors for the gospel. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Because you know what? This present world isn't worth, isn't worthy of them. And our light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. God, help us to end well. Help them to end well. See what I mean? See what I mean how now as we get to this horizontal plane that I need you and you need me and we need each other and we have to have massive doses of encouragement. We've got to love each other. We've got to love the outsider. And we've got to never forget those who are being mistreated in prison as though we're right there with them. What would they want? What would I want? What do they need? And they'll let me be committed enough in my love for them that I'll help. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a persevering kind of love that we have for one another. And that's what God wants for all of us. Let's pray.